VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today, not feeling the best, a little under the weather. So we wish him well and uh, happy to be in being helpful. <laughs> Hey, Dave, we're always helpful, you and I. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Um, I wanted to start the show this evening, uh, this morning, sorry, raising this issue because I've been talking to a few people uh, off the air and I'd like to see if it can generate some conversation. There's a, there's a neighborhood watch meeting taking place in the center city area this evening to discuss what's becoming an escalating problem. Residents tell me that no one is safe. Homes and businesses are being broken into on a regular basis. The city's hands are tied because their jurisdiction is limited to property issues. And I spoke with Deputy Mayor Sheila O'Leary about this last week. And she indicated that, uh, you know, it is a serious concern. Uh, RNC are called when a crime is committed. But it's leading to some very serious questions about housing, about mental health, about addictions, uh, about the types of supports that are available in the community, and how people who are struggling are either monitored or assisted. The city says the jurisdiction lies with the province, but I learned that it's more specifically under the realm of Eastern Health. And we've seen this cycle before. We've seen it over and over, played out many, many times. Uh, and it's becoming more apparent in a variety of neighborhoods throughout the capital city region and no doubt in the community where you live. Someone reaches a crisis point, uh, either becomes a nuisance or a danger to themselves or others, or his, is outwardly causing problems, and the police eventually are called. Are there enough supports available in the community? Nonprofits are doing what they can uh, to provide supports, uh, mostly through housing or um, meals, those kinds of things. And, and there are other types of supports out there as well, trying to keep people, um, you know, engaged. Um, are people who struggle with housing and mental health or serious addiction getting the support and assistance they need? Or will this cycle continue? Have we just essentially put our hands up and said, that's it, we're done here. Uh, we've seen a steady stream of people entering the court system in recent years who are repeat offenders falling back into familiar patterns when they're released. Why is that still happening? We've also seen instances of people charged with violent crime who've been handed over to the mental health system who end up back in the court system uh, charged with similar violent crimes. Well, I'd like to hear from residents of the center city area or anywhere where they've seen this kind of thing happen or i'd like to hear from people who have struggled at one point or another with mental illness or addiction struggles um did you or do you feel supported did you know where to get help did the system make you feel safe and comfortable the healthcare system as a whole, meanwhile, facing some very serious challenges. I see nurses entering contract talks now with government at a very critical and crucial time. 
After nearly three years of pandemic response, nurses are fed up, and we heard from uh, Nurses Union President Devet Coffey yesterday, uh, very uh, emotional and raw, uh, telling the stories of nurses who have stepped up time and time and time and time again and are getting tired. Uh, so I'd like to hear what people have to say about the uh, mental health system, the health system as a whole. Um, let us know what you have to say about that. I see Liberal MP uh, Ken McDonald voted in support of a Conservative motion in the House of Commons this week. you think that it would be uh, fairly common, but it's not. It's very rare, as a matter of fact, for a uh, government member or a party member to vote against their party. And more often than not, there are usually consequences that result from that. But Ken McDonald says, you know, I had to go with my constituents on this one. The Conservatives wanted fuel excluded from another increase in carbon taxes expected in April. And the uh, governing Liberals argue that subsidies are available for people struggling with the cost of home heat. But the ultimate goal or so they say, of carbon taxes, if you follow the argument, is to move people off of fossil fuels to renewable or less carbon-intensive energy. Well, is that working? Is it realistic in all cases? I'd like to hear what people have to say about that, and um, we'll be watching very closely to see what happens with Ken McDonald um, today when the House of Commons resumes. Uh, there are a lot of issues that are facing Newfoundlanders and Labradorians today. I'm going to leave it there for now, but I'll raise a few more as uh, the show goes on. We've had we already have some calls waiting in the queue. Dave, we we good to go? All right, I'm going to start with uh, the caller on line one. Hello. Hello. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Uh, hanging in, my girl. I just want to go back on uh, slum landlords and how they are protected by our so-called Landlord and Tenant Act. Uh, I just want to go back to the situation that I was living in these house. Dear last winter, I was in a very hard shape. I called the NDP, I called the, the Premier's office, I even called uh, the Premier's office in Ottawa because of the suffering that I was going through living in that house. I made numerous calls to the social services, which always went on that bears. They said there was no money available. They don't give allowance for home heating fuel. So... I actually emailed Patty, which I understand that cannot be put online because it's an email. You are an open line talk show. But going back to that, I called the Premier back one more time and told him that I was going to end my life. And I was dead serious about it. Shortly after that, two or three RCMP officers came to the door. The first one was a female. She seen me stood in the hallway with the knife to my chest, she started to unholster her, uh, her her gun. And the next officer that was stood there told her to put it back in. He kind of moved her out of the way and kicked in the door. And I told him not to move any further. He see in my eyes, and he seated the knife poked into my chest, and I was getting ready to shove it in. And if they had to tase me, I had it in a position that if they had to tase me or shoot me, I was going to fall on that knife regardless. I was I was wanting to end my life because of this, because of the situation that I was into, and I couldn't get no help. No can we way can we back up just a little bit? So you reached sure. this absolute crisis point where the RNC had to be called, and you were in a in a crisis. 
but you what said, led to that? Take us through that. You 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 started your conversation by commenting about slum landlords. What? How did this start? And I don't want any names. I'm not interested in names. Oh, no. But okay. but how did you end up in this in this particular circumstance? From the calls back and forth to the government, social services mostly, trying to get help to heat this house. That so you were re- having trouble um, heating your apartment. Yes, it was. It was heated by uh, furnace oil. Okay, and you didn't have enough money to heat it, or none whatsoever. The the social services told me they don't give any allowances for any home heating fuel. So you simply weren't making enough money to meet your needs. I was on social assistance at the time, and I'm still on social assistance right now. Okay, and you say you tried every avenue possible. You called the Premier's office, you called the NDP, you called social services. What were what were the responses you got? Well, the, the most uh, response that I got that made me feel a little bit uh, more comfortable was from the NDP office, Jim Din's office. He, you know, he'd done the best he could at the time he was, but, you know, you can only go so far when, you know, you got a Premier that's running our province, that's putting the rules and regulations into the social systems and their policies and everything else like that, which has been going on way too long now in here in Newfoundland with their policies and the way they run things. You know, who, who is I, your point of contact in, in the social assistance uh, sir, uh, system? Do you have a social worker or...? I have a social team, they call it. So you call when you call, you could get any of them that's working on your team. Okay, so those that, that's your first point of contact if you're having an issue, is that correct? That's correct. And do you get satisfaction when you make those calls? None whatsoever, just like talking to a, a person that can't hear. And I apologize to people that can't hear, but uh, I'm only using this expression to, you know, to let you know what I'm feeling. It goes on deaf ears. And when you say that, what do you mean exactly? I mean, you say, look, I'm having a problem with this, and they say, sorry, boy, not much we can do about it, or how does it work? They they say there's nothing they can do, or more or less they're telling me their hands are tied. And when you make these calls, what are you looking for specifically? I was looking for to get heat in that house so I can heat up. I had people from the FAC team come to my house, sit down at my table, trying to help me with conversations, and they can tell you themselves that I was sitting there in that house with a bared off room with a blanket in it, trying to keep the heat in one room, sat down, talking back and forth to each other with, with our breaths showing. And this landlord had no consideration whatsoever. He was called from the social service, and he was also called from family member, and he was also called from another part of the government, and he had no concern whatsoever. So when you entered into this contract with this landlord, was it to provide the heat, you provide the heat, or that uh, the landlord provides the heat? How did that work? The heat was on me. The heat was on you, and yet you weren't able to meet the cost. Exactly. And so you keep getting the runaround. That's right. Where are you now with with all of that? We've got another winter coming. Yeah, well, right now uh, I I had to be forced out because of what the the landlord tenant act proved and had me immediately evacuate the place, which I did the same day I got the letter. I was forced to live in a 31-foot RV trailer 
and with the conditions, you know, the weather coming on, I knew I wasn't going to suffer this winter because I didn't want to. I didn't want to go through that again. So I got a hold of the FAT team again, which these girls are absolutely wonderful. They've done more things for me than anybody i ever known, including my family. You know, people, when you're down and out and you, and you have these problems, reach out to this FAT team, and I hope you get these ladies that I had. So you what know, is this FACT team you're talking about? This FACT team is, is a, I can't, you know, I don't know exactly what it's all about because I never really looked into it much. I just re- I just appreciate what they're doing and what they're still doing for me. So they got me into a hotel right now that I'm into that I feel safe and warm until they can find, I guess, a proper house for me to live in. You know, it's, it's really ridiculous to see how... You know, our government, and especially the Landlord Tenant Act, which I had pictures that I'm hoping to give to Patty the next time I can afford to come in town. And I also got new pictures of this landlord covering up mold and mildew to put apartment in down in the basement with no considering of sicknesses, which I know the very sickness that I had, I'm pretty well sure, once I show these pictures to my doctor, is going to be a good part of what I suffered last year. I spent, an ambulance came to me once in the morning because I was that bad. The second time, my daughter called for the ambulance. They were down in my place twice. The first time, I went up to a Whitburn uh, Medical Center, and they couldn't take me in because it was full because of the COVID, so they treated me out in the ambulance. So I was in the ambulance for an hour or so. I asked them to take me back home because I wasn't comfortable just lying in that hard bed. So he brought me back home. I was home no time at all, and the ambulance had to come and get me again. So, you know, everything I'm telling you is the God and honest truth, and I got no reason why to lie to you, and I got the proof of everything I'm saying. And these other pictures that I took recently of before I moved out of the mold milieu and rotten old insulation that he's covering back up into the walls, which I had told before. And now I got the proof of it. I'm not stopping until this, these slum landlords, and especially this one, and the Landlord Tenant Act goes and really inspects these houses and goes for a landlord and goes for the tenant also. Don't go to one side. And this is my goal. I'm 63 years old. I'll be 64 now in two months. And I promised the people before, Everything I'm doing for the senior citizens and low-income people of this of Newfoundland, I'm putting 100% of my time and effort to make sure that this never happens again. Only for this one RCMP officer actually told the lady to put the holster her pistol. He kicked in the door. He stood in front of me, and he knew by the look in my eyes that I was dead serious. And I told him not to take a step pressure because either he's going to kill me with a taser by falling down with a knife in my chest or it's going to go through. So how did that get resolved? I mean, obviously, you were in a very, very um, tough spot there, um, and you're looking at three RCMP officers in your home. Um, how did that get resolved? Did they manage to talk you through it, or how did it work? Well, this one officer that kicked in the door and stood where I, you know, I told him not to go any further, and he put his hands down up to more to say, you know, I'm not going to go any further. I want to listen to you, and I want to help you. This man, his experience helped me through what I was going through. He kind of talked me down. We talked back and forth to each other, what was going on and how it was going on. He asked me to lower the knife, which I did. Then I lowered it down to my side. He kept talking to me, and, you know, we were talking back and forth to different things. I finally put the knife 
on, on the, the dresser that was right next to me while I was stood in the hallway. He finally, I finally let him in and sit down and talk to me in this cold house, which he can about for. We went and sat down. He asked me, would I willing to go to Percentra Hospital, which I did. He brought me out to Percentra Hospital. He assessed me for out there, like I said, it was that part-time year with COVID and everything's on the go so high. We ta- I talked to a doctor out there, and then he brought me back there. And on the way back, he knew how hungry I was. He stopped into one of the places there uh, at Tim Hortons, and he bought me a sandwich and lunch so I can go home. At least I have something warm to eat. So, I mean, my hats are after that one officer that done the right thing. If the, if the female officer had to kick in the door, I know I'd be dead now because she either would have fired the gun or she taser, and I would have fell on that knife because I put my, myself in that position that if she did, I would have fell on the knife one way or the other. My life was going to end. So it sounded like he, um, he saved your life. He most definitely saved my life. So where are you now? How are you doing now? Well, you know, I, I spent a, a few hours there Sunday in uh, in the hospital in Carboneira with so hungry pains, a really bad headache, and also chest pain, which I still have. And now i got to be on. I'm wearing a, a, a nitro patch until I can get in to see a heart specialist. And, you know, I do have a bad heart. I, I had open heart surgery and I had stents put in Calgary and Newfoundland since I'm home. And the pressure that I'm getting in my chest right now, it seems like the same pressure I had when I had the last two stents put in. And it's all because of stress and, and what I'm going through in my life right now because of a slum landlord. And, you know, I hear on your open line show many of the times not mentioning people's names and stuff like that because of case of a loss or stuff like that. You know, I'm willing to take that chance to, to mention his name because I would love for that man to take me to court before I can get the funding to get him in court. You know, I'm willing to do that, and I'll take all responsibilities from VOCM, Open Line, or anything else that is involved with that. I want to mention his name to let these people know, and I want to leave a number with you for people that have problems, doesn't matter what party live in Newfoundland, St. John's, anywhere around the bay, with some landlords, I'm building the case up to help these people that they don't end their lives like I almost end mine. And I'm hoping to leave the name or the number with Dave. It's not the number I'm calling. It's a new number just for this. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, Thomas. Uh, thanks for telling us your story. And thanks for being an advocate, I suppose. Um, I'll put you back on hold and uh, Dave will take that number. Can I just say one more thing here about yeah, our, sure. our open line? I call 811. Uh, Sunday before I, before I end up in hospital trying to get help. They couldn't help me at the time, so they gave me an after, an after call number, which was 211. I called it. The lady didn't even know where Bay Roberts was too, and I was trying to explain it to her, and she was, I was getting frustrated with her. So I called back 811, told the lady there. So she gave me a toll one, a 1-800 number, which I called, and I got back the same lady. So I called back 811 again. And she said, let me look into it. And then she called me back and told me that call went to uh, uh, went to Ontario. So come on, is this really what's going on, that everything is going on here, that our call's got to go to Ottawa, especially after hours? This is kind of ridiculous. And I just want to leave it at that. And I'm building up a case against that too, because that, you know, people in Newfoundland really need to join hands, one end to the other. Baymans, townies, no matter what you think, 
who we are, what we are, and what we what what we do in life. We need to vote. Get this government out. Join our hands. Get our resources. One hundred percent, like one man tried to do. Okay. If he had to stay in there, we would be a way, way better province. Thomas, I appreciate your call. I'll put you back on hold, and uh, Dave will take that number from you. Okay. Thank you. All Have right. All the best. We'll put him on hold, and uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Uh, it's a bit of a quiet morning thus far, so now is your chance to give us a call because you know what happens. Dave will tell you every time. What happens is that people wait too long into the show, and then we can't get everybody on. So... Now is your chance to give us a call. We're going to go now to uh, Jennifer Fleming, who is on line two. Hello, Jennifer. Hi there, Linda. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Great, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to discuss the uh, crime situation in Rabbiton and beyond, really, in the capital city overall. Yeah, there's a Neighbourhood Watch um, meeting going to be held tonight. Now, it's been a long time since we've talked a lot about Neighbourhood Watch. It used to be a big thing, if you recall, uh, or you may not recall, I don't know, but uh, back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. uh, So you're hoping to resurrect a Neighbourhood Watch program in your area? Yes, well, uh, I'm not the uh, creator of that. Uh, Some other lady had that great idea, and uh, just so happened uh, our house was broken into again on the weekend. the fourth uh, time in as many months uh, at our business. We own a business in the neighborhood, and we live in the neighborhood as well. And it's just it's too much. And so I uh, fully support that, and I think uh, we need to take action collectively as a group. So what's going on? So uh, this past weekend, uh, somebody broke in and stole our solar generator and all our power tools out of our garage um, and uh, used the child's uh, red wagon to make away with our items. And then uh, our next-door neighbor came over and was uh, looking around the house. We were discussing the situation. And then he went home and discovered that a brand-new set of winter tires were stolen from his uh, shed as well. So it is a massive problem, and every neighbor just about that we speak to has been touched by this car windows being broken screens being slashed Halloween decorations being destroyed a lady had a home invasion twice while she was in the house uh, truck box covers being stolen everything went flashlights and looking in cars to find anything to steal like this is the onslaught that uh, really needs to stop and we need to band together as a unit collectively uh, until we can get more police on the streets are you, have you been in the neighborhood long? Yeah, I've I've lived in the neighborhood since uh, 2016, and we opened the business here uh, just this past June. And has it been getting progressively worse? Was, has it always been bad? What what's the situation? I think it's getting progressively worse. I mean, of course, uh, you know, people are struggling more than ever too with uh, poverty, drug addiction, mental health issues, and we don't have uh, proper resources to deal with that here in Newfoundland. Uh, mental health always takes a backseat, as do addiction issues, and it's uh, time for that to end. However, I would like to say that I believe that the people that have targeted us are not uh, addicted to drugs or anything else because it's a highly planned, uh, professional type of job that has been done. So I I don't want to uh, scapegoat, uh, you know, mental health issues or drug addictions for all these problems. Um, But, uh, yes. um, Are these culprits perhaps known? Sometimes people have a sense of who they think it might be, or or is this unknown to you? Um, I think the police, uh, you know, 
know who these people are. I think it's repeat offenders. However, you know, it takes so long for anything to get through the criminal justice system. Once it does get through, it's like a slap on the wrist as well. Uh, you know, they they just don't have the evidence to to capture them. You know, they did forensics on the little red wagon, but of course, you know, there's not much you can get from that. So the reality is, you know, we're never going to catch you did this this time, but hopefully in the future we will if we band together as a group. So how any estimates on the losses that you've suffered over the years? I mean, it's probably tens of thousands of dollars, including like, you know, security costs and material costs. And, you know, I guess like the next thing is they're going to uh, probably try to enter the home, you know, and uh, it's just unacceptable. Like we we can't live like this in this like reign of terror basically is what it is and it's it's unacceptable you know like we're hard-working people we live in a beautiful diverse neighborhood that we love and we want this place to flourish and uh, you know these criminals are holding us back and pushing us down and quite frankly terrorizing us so what's the response you've received from um i don't know the city uh, the rnc well, the RNC, you know, for instance, uh, the other day when we reported our uh, our theft and everything, a sergeant with the force came out to take our details, which and he himself said that, you know, sergeants normally are not doing that, but they don't have the officers required to meet the demand of the crime that's on the streets. And he had to leave us, like, early because he had to go attend to reports of gunshots over by the university. Like, you know, it's a serious issue here, you know, and the police officers themselves have been so good, so kind, so professional, but they themselves say there's not enough resources and we need a city police force just like Mount Pearl has. We need more resources, you know. So tell us a little bit now about what the the neighborhood is planning with this, this meeting tonight. Well, I'm not quite sure because I'm not involved in the planning of it, but uh, I guess to share stories and to hopefully band together to, uh, you know, create a united front so we can tackle this. If it's patrols, uh, we even discuss, like, the potentiality of, like, hiring a private security firm to do uh, rounds, you know, like they do in Torbay. They have the commissioners out there. So we're just getting pretty desperate, you know, like... We need to take action until we can get more police on the streets because it's it's only getting progressively worse. And, you know, to be broken into four times in four months is uh, quite excessive, I would say. Uh, yeah, it would be. Um, one time is too many. Um, it is. And how, how is this impacting your insurance, for instance? Well, we only went through insurance once because, of course, you know, your premiums go up and everything. But I have to say it's... Uh, very detrimental to our mental and physical health you know like it's it's taking its toll and you know it's hard to sleep through the night now because every every little noise we're startled awake and it's you know it's it's not fair you know we're good hard-working people we want to make the community a better uh happier place and uh, this has to end and that feeling of violation there's no you you can't just shake that or shrug that off no, I, and I always feel like somebody's watching me, of course, because, you know, I know they're watching to see, like, when they think we're going to sleep, we're going to left the house so they can, you know, make a move. And, you know, it's not okay. Well, Jennifer, uh, I wish you and uh, the people in your neighborhood all the best. Uh, that meeting is tonight. Uh, what time? It's at 630 at the Hub in Rabbit Town. And, yes, the more people, the better, so we can really band together and unite and uh we can, you know, I believe as a group we can take action and take these people down and uh, 
take back what's ours, our peace and tranquility and our rights to have a, a good, peaceful life in this town, you know? Jennifer Fleming, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Linda. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, any other na- issues in the neighborhood or any other residents in the neighborhood want to give us a call? Please do so. Uh, the lines are lit right up. Uh, so uh, be patient. We'll be with you in just a moment. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. Uh, We're going to go now to the MHA for Mount Pearl Southlands. Paul Lane, hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Linda, uh, first of all, what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to throw out a... uh, uh, a, a big bouquet uh, to uh, uh, MP Ken McDonald um, for uh, voting with uh, the people uh, yesterday as opposed to towing the party line. And um, certainly uh, I know firsthand what that's, uh, what that's like. I also understand the repercussions that can uh, come from it. I don't know uh, what repercussions uh, Ken will face. Um, you know, I don't know if he'll be kicked out of his caucus, as uh, I was by former Premier Ball and uh, and my former colleagues in that regard. And by the way, I thank them for that. Six years later was the best thing ever happened to me. Uh, but uh, I don't know what will happen to Ken, but uh, I, I just want to say to him uh, that, uh, you know, uh, I certainly support what he did. He did the right thing. He stood up for the people. Uh, of the province as opposed to just uh, being told what to do and, uh, and and just answering to his political masters. How, how difficult is that for a politician? Just uh, walk us through that, if you will, because a lot of us don't have that understanding. A lot of us think, you know, if I was a politician, I'd vote uh, for, you know, my constituents. Uh, but that's not always how it works. No, it doesn't, because you uh, because you have to understand that, um, you know, as someone said to me one time, um, you know, uh, you have to pick what hill you're prepared to die on. Uh, generally speaking, the expectation is that you're going to toe the party line, whatever uh, you're told, um, uh, the way it's going to go when it comes to uh, positions that you're going to take publicly, uh, votes that are going to be had uh, in uh, in the House Assembly or in Parliament. In this case, uh, you know, uh, there's an expectation that you're that you have to follow whatever the party tells you to do. Um, you know that if you don't do it, um, there's going to be repercussions, and so that's why, as I said, uh, you know, you hear this expression. It was said to me, uh, you know, you got to pick what hill you're prepared to die on because. If you go against the party, you will die on that hill. Uh, there's no doubt about it. So I, I don't know what will happen, as I say, to Ken in, in, in this case. Um, I, I suspect there's going to be some repercussions. How severe they will be, I guess we'll find out in the uh, coming days. Uh, it, it's not an easy decision to make because, of course, you know, uh, you're going to face the wrath of the party. And, and, and in a lot of cases, your uh, your colleagues would be are going to be very quick to, uh, to, to turn on you. That happens. Uh, but at the end of the day, at least for me, it was about being able to sleep at night and being able to look yourself in the mirror in the morning. And 
Uh, I have no regrets uh, about what I did. And as I said, I would actually thank Premier Ball, former Premier Ball and all my former colleagues for, uh, for giving me the boot because, uh, as I said, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, at least I can go around in my community with my head held high and I can speak on behalf of the people who elected me, take the position that they want me to take, not simply be told what to say, when to say it. Now, in this case, it's a bit different because it's not uh, that he voted against his own party who were bringing forward something. This was a motion brought forward from the Conservatives, my understanding is, and he voted in favour of that. Correct. And, uh, and, and in my case, in 2016, I actually uh, voted in support of an NDP motion uh, to kill the uh, the levy um, that, that that that's what happened in in, in my case. Uh, so it is very similar. Uh, as I said, I'm not sure what'll happen, but uh, I'm with him all the way, regardless. And I and I know an awful lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians there as well. And I certainly would encourage his constituents to to stick with him because he has uh, actually stood up for them, which is something that we rarely see and something certainly to be admired. And he certainly has my respect for what he's done. And, and, and on the issue itself, you know, uh, Linda, and, and that's the important thing as well, is that what we're talking about here is, you know, here we are in a situation, uh, and uh, you're hearing it all the time, I'm hearing it all the time, people who simply cannot afford to live, uh, you know, with the price of, uh, of, of home heat, with the price of fuel for their vehicles, which they need if they want to go to work, with the price of uh, groceries, uh, rent gone up, now we're seeing interest rates going up, so mortgages, the cost to service your mortgage is going up, and people are really, really struggling. And at a time where we have people struggling, now we're looking at you know the federal government uh, tripling the carbon tax over the next three years, I think it is. It's, it's not immediate, as the uh, Mr. Poliev would sort of want to portray it, but uh, I, I think it is within the next three years it's going to be a tripling. And people simply cannot afford to pay for that and uh you know it's one thing to try i I understand the concept around climate change we all agree i think that you know there are things happening um uh, with climate change and we're seeing more storms more severe storms we've seen it here in newfoundland labrador we saw the uh what happened in in port of basque we're seeing things happening all over the world we cannot ignore climate change but i'm not sure I, i cannot see for the life of me how if you have somebody who's just struggling to make ends meet now, they, they, they can barely survive, and now all of a sudden you're going to say to them it's going to cost you, you know, twice as much money or more to put oil in your furnace so that you and your family don't freeze it this winter, how, how punishing them is going to do anything at all to contribute to uh, stemming the flow of, of, of climate change is beyond me. It's absolutely... Uh, it's absolute insanity as far as I'm concerned. People are already making uh, those choices, aren't they, without this added tax? They they absolutely are. I mean, there's people that are, I mean, we hear it all the time, seniors who are not taking their medications, seniors who, uh, you know, are are taking a pill and cutting it in half and taking half of what they're prescribed because they have to make the choice between medication or food or heat for their homes. It's absolutely, it's absolutely ridiculous. And to put this additional burden, this unnecessary burden, I would suggest, uh, on people uh, is, uh, you know, the, the government, the federal government in this case, must not have any conscience whatsoever. They simply don't care. 
And uh, anyone who would vote to support that, as far as I'm concerned, should not be reelected um, in the next federal election. They should all get the boot. Now, they're suggesting and, uh, that there's so- a subsidy that's available for people who are struggling. Yeah, there's subsidies, Linda. For yeah, we can we can talk about subsidies, but at the time, the, the problem is is that at the time, it's no different than, you know, our provincial government just you know we're going to get a check for five hundred dollars at some point in time. Uh, anyway, I could get onto a big rant about that one about you know who really needed it and where the money should have gone and so on. But there's no doubt there's people who really do need that. But you know, if you need to fill if the if the uh, if you need to fill up your your oil tank in the middle of the winter because you're cold. Um, you know, is there anybody going to be there when the oil man comes around uh, and says, okay, um, you owe me $1,000 or whatever. Is, is is that money, that subsidy going to be in your hand at that time, month over month, to, to, to take care of that? It's not. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people just don't, don't have the ability to pay for these things up front with hopes that at some point in time they might get a little check or a little rebate from the government. Uh, you know, it's fine if you can afford it and you get something after the fact that's a little help or whatever. Hey, that's all good. But the thing you got to remember with any of these subsidy programs and so on is that people don't have the cash when the oil man comes to the door. They don't have the cash at the grocery store when you know you're ringing your groceries they want the money now not uh, i'm going to get some little subsidy or a little bit of help from the government at some point in time i'll come back and pay you next month it doesn't work that way so you know while some of these things may be helpful the fact of the matter is that people are struggling at you know at, at every given moment at the time um and to simply add to their burden by 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 jacking up the price of home heating fuel of all things um, you know, at, at a time where they're barely hanging on to begin with is just totally unconscionable as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, anyone who would support that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they should get the boot in uh, the next election. But I do thank Mr. McDonald for having the courage of his convictions and for standing with the people who actually elected him as opposed to just being a sheep. Uh, Paul, we're overdue for a break, but I will ask you this kind of this question now, how you having lived through this kind of thing. So what's going sure. on behind the scenes now? We already know that he's probably going to face some kind of uh, um, consequences within the Liberal Party. But what about the Conservatives? Will they be, I guess, uh, trying to woo him over? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's all about seat count and trying to get us many seats as you can to form the government. I, You know, I'm not convinced that, the, you know, and, and don't take my commentary, by the way, as somehow supporting Mr. Poliev and the Conservatives, because to my mind, they're all alike. I, I don't see any difference. You know, if, if it was a Conservative government, uh, you'd be expected to toe the party line on their end. So, um, you know, they, 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 they may be reaching out, I think, from... What I heard from uh, Mr. McDonald's comments, at least as of yesterday, I believe he indicated that he still supports the uh, Prime Minister, the uh, the Liberal Party, but he just disagrees on this particular issue. And that's fair enough, and, and I'm sure that that's uh, probably exactly the way he feels. Um, you know, whether or not uh, he's going to be sanctioned uh, and to what degree he's going to be the sanction, I guess we'll find out in the... Uh, in the days to come. But uh, at the end of the day, regardless of what happens, 
uh, as far as I'm concerned, he did the right thing by standing up for what was best for his constituents as opposed to being told what to do and to support something that would be detrimental to his constituents, and he should be commended for this. And one would hope that it will open up conversations, I would imagine, within the party uh, about what the right thing to do is uh, in in the current circumstances. Um, uh, I hope so. Paul, I really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Not a problem, Linda. All the very best. Same to you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. And we'll uh, take a short break. When we come back, we're going to speak with Rhonda right after this. And we're back. <laughs> That's my cue. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Uh, this gentleman just uh, messaged us. He says, it's high time that somehow we got to stop burning oil for heat for many reasons. He says, I got rid of oil two summers ago, and it's been the best move I ever made. Uh, your thoughts? Give us a call. Not everybody has the ability to make those switches. We're going to go now to uh, Rhonda. You're on the air. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for taking my call. And uh, I got this all summarized in a couple of short sentences. Well, if you and I can get it out, so I'll tell you, and then I'll breathe, and you can respond if that's okay. All right, no rush. You take your time. Okay, no, my mom passed in August. She was my only mental health person. We were kind of each other's mental health people. So when I lost her in August, uh, well, everything I've been going through kind of culminated. Uh, So in May, uh, well, I've well, I was on CBC talking about insulin way back in the day, the expired insulin lady that had to go to her cupboard and use expired insulin. So since that, uh, I've had a petition submitted for insulin to the House of Assembly through NDP, Chimden and, and Associates. And uh, so anyway, up to May, uh, I ended up having a uh, broken tooth, went to the dentist, well, I resisted going to the dentist until I knew I had to. I uh, went to the dentist uh, for the last of May, and that was the broken tooth infection. Uh, I was supposed to go to, Atlanta, uh, to a surgeon, the only surgeon for dental in town. Uh, so uh, antibiotics uh, two weeks after, back to the same dentist, another tooth infected. Another round of antibiotics, another referral sent to the same place. Uh, I've got uh, probably three other cavities. This has all resulted because I lost my private insurance, and then I was on a prescription drug program here. I couldn't afford insulin, so my teeth totally went to you know where. So this is where I am now. And if I could, I can't tell you everything else that happened between that. But just let let it say that through. Everything I've been through with the government. Not only have I lost everything, even my relationship is gone. So maybe I can get the drug plan now, because I'm single. So thank you to the government. Thousand. I'm going to breathe, and you can you can ask me what. It- so you you had dental insurance at one point. Obviously, you were, had that through a work or a work program. Yes, that's correct. When my work, when I went on long-term disability, I had private insurance, and that continued until the premiums got too expensive for the the, the people that you know us, the, the employees. So they voted to end it, and uh, I of course didn't vote. And in 2018. That I believe now I could be off date. Things are kind of foggy, but 2018 was when I got the notice that you're cut. And then I went to the Newfoundland Labrador Prescription Drug Program for 40 copay until last summer, 93, and then I was denied totally because my ex-Pamela partner made $2,000 more a year, roughly, 
and my son turned 18. So that's why I went from 43% copay to being denied for insulin. I can't even get sensors or me supplies. 13000 a year it started off. I had to cut back on all medications. In referral to your previous caller, I had to start weaning off 13 different meds, including anxiety meds, blood pressure meds, vitamins, everything just for my health. Then I had to go to insulin. So I was on the news. How many other people are out there that's not talking? Why would you talk if I'm out there saying this and nobody's reaching out to me? I haven't got any help from the government. So you're diabetic, is that correct? I had surgery in 2007 for FAP, and I had to have an ileostomy after that because it's polyps. It's precancerous polyps. If they're not taken care of, they will turn to cancer. So when I had my surgery in 2007, you could not see a bowel. It was just like mushrooms on the inside of a tube. So Dr. Such-and-Such told my fiancé, and he only told me this last month or a month ago, that the only time he's seen a colon in such dire need was post-mortem. So I'm pretty lucky to be here. And the doctor done a phenomenal job. So anyway, uh, that was in uh, November 2007. My dad passed in January 2008. At that time, I had dropped about 40 pounds and was going through diabetes that was caused by my pancreas being traumatized through surgery. So he died on the 11th of January on his 77th birthday. And on the 28th of uh, January, I was diagnosed by my family doctor. And it's diabetes, but it's other insulin dependent. So are you on insulin now? Yes. And are you having any trouble getting the insulin? Yes. I'm having trouble getting everything, including food, nutrition, appointments. I can't, I, I, my teeth are falling apart. I had, I had work done before I lost my insurance to get a partial plate done and to get a bite plate done. Now, when I had, I had four molds done in two, in, in less than a year or less than two years. So every tooth in my head is chipping out. Like, I brush my teeth. I take care of it. But the last time I went to a dentist, I had to pay $700 before Christmas. Then I ended up calling CBC. Where do I go? Now to go down today, I finally got an appointment to see a surgeon. After five months, the tooth cracked out in my head. My sinuses have been infected ever since. My voice is like this because I'm choking on slim. I can only sleep two hours at a time. Because the phlegm from my side is cut off my so breathing. Do you have a, do you have a social worker? No, I have nobody except Andy P and a few friends. So who is your uh, who is your MHA? Very good. And I called him initially, and he done what he could with the tools he was provided. God, all this hurt. I called Ken McDonald. He done the same with the tools he was provided. I wrote Andrew Fury two letters in May. Crickets, nothing. I can't store it. I'm saying nothing bad. I just can't do with this anymore. I've lost everything. Now where do I go? Everything is gone. Well, hopefully uh, Barry Petten and or uh, Ken McDonald, well, Ken McDonald's probably a little busy today, um, uh, are listening and will be able to provide you with uh, some um, greater direction because you, you're in a pretty uh, serious situation there. I can't think I had to hope that my province would say, you know, this girl needs help. Pat, she was on the national news network. She was on the local open line with Patty. I've been tweeting, texting. I've been getting involved. In, I'm an administrator for a Facebook group. 
I'm in a contest called Fab Over 40, and if I win $40,000 American, I'm taking it and putting it back in the province. I'm going to start a charity. It, I, I'm doing every. I'm going to take forty thousand dollars American if I win this contest. All it needs is votes, and I got. I will promise. I'll put every cent other than ticket to see my band collect the soul right back into the province, and I'll get insulin for whoever needs it. And I'll ask everybody out there with money that wants to be a philanthropist, help me. Let's help everybody else. Nobody should suffer like us. Nobody. Rhonda, I really appreciate your call this morning. Uh, let's uh, hope you get some answers to some of the very important questions you're asking here this morning. Really appreciate your time. God bless you, Linda. And I did call in talk to you a long time ago. Uh, uh, it was when there was a molten rock thing. I'll, I'll let you know another time. But bless your heart. You guys are angels, your viewers, listeners. God love Newfoundland. God love you guys. Bless your heart and thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're up to news time um, with Brian Medore. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. And uh, Evelyn just messaged us and asked Rhonda to call the MCP Adult Dental Program. She says dentures may be covered using her Newfoundland Labrador prescription drug program card. So, uh, Rhonda, if you're listening, there's a little advice from Evelyn. Call the MCP Adult Dental Program. And uh, someone else asking us uh, if we could get the someone from the town of Clarenville to uh, respond to issues raised yesterday on the show with Patty Daly about um, the new proposed regulations surrounding um, backyard farming, I suppose. And uh, we have uh, been trying, Dave has been trying, and the newsroom has been trying to reach somebody with the town of Clarenville to just uh, uh, talk about that a little bit. So uh, we are making the attempt, and hopefully we'll hear from them soon. We're going to go now to uh, Dave. You're on the air. Good day, good day. Hello, David. How are you this morning? Good. Excellent. Enjoying your show as usual. Thank you. This morning, a topic that I heard you speak on, that I had read about earlier when I got up first on VOCM site, and in the past, I guess I've had no problem with speaking up when, when politicians did wrong. But you should also speak up when politicians do right. And what I saw Ken McDonald do, to me, was not only right, but it was also very stand-up, courageous, showed that he had a political conscience, that he's there to represent the people that put him in the seat that he's in. And instead of towing the party line, to put through what I'm completely amazed that anybody else, anybody else voting in that house would be supportive of, he had the fortitude to stand up and say, no, I'm not doing that because it's not right. And it's not the reason that I was elected. It's not the reason that I was put in this house to have a vote. To me... It's so rare in today's world that you get a reason to applaud a political figure. Um, and I, like others, have, have not applauded, and I've 
thrown thrown bricks and not bouquets in the past. But I also feel that it's when something like this happens, it should be noted. And Ken McDonald, I don't know you, never met you, but rest assured, even though I'm not from your area, if I were in your area, I would vote for a fellow like you. So how Very do you address impressed. that issue, though? I mean, um, ostensibly, the carbon tax is about trying to move people off of oil. And, you know, the only way to motivate people in many cases uh, is economically, if you know what I mean, when it hits them in the pocketbook. So how do you successfully move people off of oil? Or there, does there have to be a program in place? What, what should be done? There's got to be some common sense in place. Maybe there are some people in this world that can afford to be effectively priced out of something such as the burning of petrofuels to heat your home. Maybe they can afford to go out and retrofit the equipment that's required, but there are an awful lot of people that can't. So just taking the initiative blindly to move ahead like this carbon tax, which makes absolutely zero, zero sense, because the carbon tax has not reduced one ton of carbon since it started. The carbon taxes only reduce people's ability to spend, to mainstay themselves. And if somebody is playing martyr in Ottawa right now, if you're playing planet savior, now is not the time. We've taken thousands of years to put us in the position that we're in. And I'm not so sure that man is responsible for everything that's going on with whatever's happening in the depletion of our ozone. And by certainly by admission, oh, if clearly else, we no are fault. making a big difference in accelerating it. That's right. But at the same time, do we just toss people to the wolves that certainly cannot afford this? People on fixed incomes, senior citizens that haven't seen a raise in their in in their own finances in years. And to go right now, we're looking at right now. Currently, we're paying sixty percent more for home heating products than we were last year. With this new increase, it's expected that this goes up to like an 80% increase. And this is not a luxury. This is a basic need. Heating your homes in Canada should not be questionable. It should not even be something that plays into your daily mark. It's not something that should be bothering you. I'd it like, never was. I'd like to see the stats on uh, who uh, in this province right now is heating their home with oil. I'm sure the companies that supply them have a pretty good idea. But is it primarily seniors? Uh, a lot of them are, for sure. I used to be in the home heating business. I had delivery trucks on the road. I had bulk supply. And we supplied these home heating fuels, furnace oil, stove oil, to different people around. Quite a few of those were the traditional older homes that were owned by older folk. Uh, Not all, because in today's world, those same homes do still exist. And I mean, a lot of young people are living in them. So it's, it's basically kind of the way that things were. We had a wood stove. We had the oil wood stove. And I mean, before the... Before we start seeing things like heat pumps and this type of thing, it was basically, you know, either an oil furnace or electric furnace or, or wood. So now we've gotten to the point where the federal government has basically said to themselves, we're going to do, like, what is what else is the initiative here? Is 
people bloody well know, including people that voted yes for this, and people, including the MPs that voted yes for this, they know that people are currently struggling with just about every aspect of their lives, that something such as an 80% increase in home heating, which is, like I said, not a luxury, it's a very basic need, is effectively crippling that entire household. And here in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly on the Avalon Peninsula, where the greatest number of um, uh, the population is concentrated, we have this catch-22 situation where the LIL, uh, LIL, has been uh, proven to be unreliable, and we're probably going to have to rely on Bunker C being burned at Holyrood for the next number of years. So we're in a real catch-22. Yes, they're actually even looking at a way to probably change the way that Holyrood functions. I, I know that there are there is strong talk right now of using a hydrogen type of uh, uh, engine or whatever instead of burning petrofuels to be able to do the, the process that they may be able to do it with hydrogen. Well, that would be great. I know they're using it in mass transportation and ships and other things, and I'm sure it's going to be developed more. Like, I mean, electric itself right now is basically something that's not going to be the solve, not going to be our future. It's going to be maybe part of the puzzle. But in, if you want to be realistic, uh, they say the carbon footprint from electric vehicle use and such is not exactly uh, reduced anything at all because to, we're just relocating where we have the problem with, with, with the emissions, like where they're mining lithium and, and all of the carbon emission that goes on in that area to, say, to power up electric cars in the U.S., there's a trade-off. We're not really getting eliminating the carbon. We're relocating it. So what it boils down to is something very simple. It's going to take time to get us out of this. There's no question we have to make, as a planet, as a world, we have to make moves forward towards changing the energy that we use and what we're doing to our atmosphere and the, and the trouble that we're causing. There's no question we have to do that. But it can't be done at a rate that a senior citizen or somebody on a fixed income for any reason has to say, well, I can't stay home today. I've got to shut the heat down. I've got to go hang out in the mall all day or whatever to stay warm. These type of things should not be happening in Canada. And you can't blame anybody sitting around in your room or your workplace. These things are to be dropped right back in the laps of the politicians and the rule makers and the, and the people that basically make these decisions for us. You have to do better. It's time you did better. It's time you started thinking about the constituents that you represent rather than paying the party line and tinking glasses afterwards because, hey, we got that one through the house, bye. We had the right number. We got it true. Didn't make that it, it didn't mean that it meant any sense. It just simply meant that you had a small group of people that stuck cohesively to make a decision that drastically affects an awful lot more of us. Dave, we'll have to leave it there. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks. Thank you, Linda. Right. And Ken McDonald, thank you. And anybody else that's in politics, Look at what Ken McDonald's doing and adopt some of his ways. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Vic is next on the line. Hello, Vic. Oh, good morning, Linda, and uh, your listening audience. Uh, wonderful show you're doing today. Thank you. 
I, I heard uh, Peter Fenwick on, I think, last week regarding the, um, uh, I guess, the wind energy project there on the West Coast. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence on that one. I think we need more information as just pros and cons of the whole uh, program, you know, or uh, we need to know more. The other thing I think that applies to all the people of Newfoundland, and the people should have some say, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say, I guess maybe we should have a vote on this to the people after we see all the pros and cons and just where we stand here. Uh, The other thing, I'm just wondering where that project, uh, that idea came from. Uh, we haven't seen, I know we have the uh, study done by, the, I think it was the Rothschild of London, uh, I think pertaining to where Newfoundland, what should Newfoundland should be doing regarding her resources, and I think, and what, I think, uh, maybe, what, what uh, model we should be using, I think, in our economic, in economics here, in our economic economy, etc. I'm just so. I'm just again. I'm, I know. I think our premier said uh, he didn't want to release reporting because of I think business. I think uh, etc. Involved in this, but I think we should see that that Rothschild report. What does it say? And are we going to be giving away our natural resources again? You know. The other thing is, and what 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 will we be getting out of this uh, West Coast? You know, or, or what benefits are we going to be getting? And the other point uh, I like to make is uh, uh, I, I, I'm very sad to hear about Hockey Canada. Now, Hockey Canada again. I think we, we're not seeing what's going on there. Uh, I think this should be more transparent and open. Was the law broken there? Uh, what did they do? You know. Also, I understand the federal government uh, contributed money to the Hockey Association. I think uh, during the COVID. I forget the number of millions of dollars now, but you know, if those people broke law, that should be brought forward. This is sort of we're sort of in a maze here. Uh, the, I know I'm, I mentioned a lot of things here. The other thing, uh, I guess, I'm, uh, this is sort of bothering me too. How legal? Uh, I mean, I, I'm after seeing now. Uh, you're, we're seeing a uh, order of court settlements uh, pertaining to sexual abuse. I think we had a case recently where this child was uh, sexually abused, and the family and the organization, I think the person who abused the child, they had an out-of-court settlement while the child was still a child. Now, I understand the child now is an adult, and I think came forward there, uh, I think last year, I saw it in the paper, and she named her abuser. Now... Uh, how does where does this stand legally in pertaining to the child welfare legislation? Uh, now, is that those people breaking the law and it's being covered up by, by dollars and cents? So I think this and this is happening. I'm noticing now a lot of uh, uh, financial uh, settlements uh, uh, pertaining to sexual abuse. So where does that stand in the law? I mean, I, I, you know, who was uh, you know those abusers, particularly that case years ago, and the abuser actually got off because the family had accepted a financial. How legal is that?
You're, you're raising a number of uh, very interesting questions. You're obviously uh, a thinker and someone who doesn't just accept information as it's coming in. You're asking questions about it. Well, um, I, I can't answer the, the any of those uh, questions. Those are for um, greater minds than my own. But uh, uh, you're ve- raising some very, very good questions. Uh, well, the questions are actually, uh, I guess I'm uh, aiming the questions at the, the uh, Minister of Justice, particularly to the child welfare abuse, uh, child sexual abuse, I'm sorry. Uh, the, other que- the other thing now uh, is bothering me, I see in the paper today and yesterday, uh, and of course of the news the other day, uh, they're removing the old uh, uh, Memorial University during the convocation, the old to Newfoundland. Uh, which to me is very, uh, I, I mean, let's face it now, I'm a Newfoundlander, uh, born and raised here, uh, and uh, I think they're, they're, uh, after, I think the president said, I think it's, uh, I think the, the change in the old, uh, whoever made the decision, I assume the president of Memorial University, uh, uh, to be inclusive to other, to all cultures here in Newfoundland. Uh, I, so I guess my first reaction is this, actually. Now, I know she was very, uh, uh, very, what's the word? Uh, when she became uh, president, I don't think, I know that she had a, uh, I think, an uh, indigenous uh, um, association set up in, I think, Goose Bay. And she's really promoting, uh, I guess, inclusion in the indigenous culture here in Newfoundland, I guess, in all of Canada. And uh, that's fine and great. Now, uh, we have other uh, cultures here in Newfoundland, too. And uh, we have the Cajun culture. I don't see too much, uh, you know, so I, I would ask her to probably... Maybe she could put some emphasis on the Cajun culture. And uh, another question, too. Now, I, we have a, from, from kindergarten to grade 12, uh, Cape St. George, uh, all French school. And uh, from what I understand, uh, a few years ago, I think I took the trouble to find out, uh, we're sending our French uh, uh, students who I think actually do, uh, I guess, a practice more uh, hands-on living with a French uh, people or French culture, uh, but they're not sending any of those students to Cape St. George where they have French, there's a French settlement there, etc. And uh, we have, say, a grade from grade uh, kindergarten to grade grade 12, all French school. And I understand the president of that school or the, the uh, principal of that school is actually full, uh, totally French. I, I think the person hails from uh, uh, New Brunswick. Anyway, and we also had Newfoundland, the principal of that school, who was totally French. Uh, so the dad, no, if you want to talk about inclusion, well, how about inclusion the uh, Cajun, the Cajun culture here in Newfoundland, which I hear very little of. Uh, so that's 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 the point I like to make out that to bring forward. So I I, I certainly feel that uh, the old of Newfoundland uh, pertaining to. Uh, the congregation should not be moved. And uh, I, I play a bit of music, and I remember the first uh, tune I, I, I learned on the accordion was the Ode, Ode to Newfoundland. And I play that probably on a, maybe sometimes on a daily basis when I'm playing the accordion. So again, I, I think, uh, you know, are we changing uh, things just for change's sake, you know? 
Well, you're raising some very interesting uh, questions, Vic. I, I really appreciate your, uh, there's a lot there to digest, of course, but you're raising uh, and, and, great and, questions. Yes, and I think we have to be, we have to be masters of our own, of our own house now, right? Uh, you can't go change the things just to change. And I, I think it's on the news last night. Another thing for, for the president of Memorial University to chew on, if she wants something to chew on, uh, is uh, they had this person, I think, on news last night that the fishery science in Newfoundland is inadequate. Uh, DFO, I think, has the, the science you're using is inadequate to, I guess, to assess our cod stocks now. Uh, I, one of my biggest uh, concerns and my biggest, uh, I guess, in Newfoundland uh, is our fishery. And we're here because of the fishery. And I think uh, we're, we're really missing the boat in terms of uh, management. I always thought we should have a joint management, a Newfoundland government and the federal government, because, and uh, I know they say that the northern stocks are not coming back. Well, okay, let, well, let's try cutting back on those foreign uh, uh, allocations that are given to foreign countries of our, our, our precious fish. You know what I mean? And look at the money we still we could be making, more money on the fishery if we cut back maybe on some of those uh, foreign ag- allegations to other countries. All right, you Vic, know? you've given us a lot to ponder on. I'm going to have to leave it there because I'm up for a break. Take them on call. I really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. And we'll be back right after this. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's off today and uh, just received this email. Gentleman says, I retired and moved home, bought a house that's heated by oil, checked on getting a heat pump put in, was told that the existing ductwork would have to be replaced. The cost of the changeover, $20,000. He says that's a hard pill to swallow when you're on a fixed un- income, as it will probably cost three dollars to $4,000 to heat his home this winter. Well, p- did, have you looked into a mini split, perhaps? Uh, I don't think you need that duct work for that. Uh, anyway, uh, it's food for thought. We're going to go now to uh, Don. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Good, Don. How are you? I'm doing this. Down Richards there, Bear Need on the uh, Port of Great Peninsula. Yes. And I'd just like to pass out a bouquet to Mr. Ken McDonald for a stand on this carbon tax. He's your MP. Yes, he certainly is. And uh, I'll just tell you a short story. Uh, a number of years ago, I was visiting a friend of mine in Portagrave, Jimmy Porter, and we were standing in his driveway, and a gentleman came walking up the driveway this morning, and this man was Mr. Ken McDonald, and he introduced himself and uh, said he was planning to run for politics, so uh, we had a great conversation with him. And after a few minutes, Jimmy said, uh, you're the first man, the first politician to ever walk up my driveway. So we had a great conversation, and uh, that's why I continue to vote for make, Mr. McDonald. I met him a number of times in uh, different uh, functions here on the peninsula and over the years. A fine man, and good for you, sir. All right, thanks, uh, Linda. All right, well, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Yep, have a great day. All righty. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to the MHA for Topsail Paradise. Uh, Paul Din, hello. Hi, Linda. How are you this morning? Good. No, that's wonderful. You had a great show going. Thank you. Yeah, no, I uh, I was driving in this morning and I was listening to, uh, I think it was Jerry Lynn Mackey was on, and uh, she was talking about uh, talking to someone from Blue Ivy Group and, uh, and uh, 
survey that was uh, recently done about uh, uh, healthcare and that. And of course, you had it in your preamble when you spoke about the nurses' contract talks and the health system. So, so I want to call in and just uh, lend, uh, well, not not necessarily my view, but the view of people I've, I've spoken with on this. And uh, I mean, we all know our our, our healthcare is uh, in in dire straits, uh, without a doubt. And uh, the nurses have a rally today, of course, and uh, their new promotional piece is uh, entitled "Beyond Broken." And uh, you know, those words those words speak a lot uh, for our healthcare. And we, I know, we uh, in the House of Assembly, we we uh, we, we asked the questions, and, and it was a long time before we could get uh, get government to recognise that we're in a crisis. But I think we're, you know we're beyond that now. And the surveys that come out, uh, there was another one from, uh, I think it was MQO Research came out recently as well. Uh, the picture being painted of healthcare, and I understand it's uh, national and global. Uh, it's it's really, really, you know, dire. And, uh, you know, for us as a province, this is not something that just happened overnight. This is something we saw coming. This is something that we should have reacted on. Uh, and, you know, here we are. And then the pandemic came and just well, made it all worse, I suppose. Well, yeah, and, and you see on the news that some of these, uh, you know, the cases of those with COVID and that are, are on the rise again, I mean, that's going to put a further strain on uh, on our uh, healthcare workers, in particular our nurses. I, I, I look at the uh, Blue Ivy Group, I mean, uh, you know, they did a survey, and 89%, 89% of healthcare professionals flagged the nurses shortage as the most dangerous to patients. 89%. That's healthcare professionals. Now, doctors were second at 65%, and it goes on. And there's, you know, that's a huge, huge number when you think about it. Well, and, we know that, that they're the, the stopgap, aren't aren't they, oh. really? I mean, that's what we talk about when we talk about beds. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about nursing positions to staff those beds. Well, yeah, you know, they're, they're the person you see when you go in, and they're the person, if you're, if you're uh, waking up after surgery, they're the person you see. You know, they're there. I mean, now, not to take away from the many other health professionals that play a part. I mean, our paramedics is a good example as well, you know, who who are in dire straits when they when they know they're transporting someone and and the person may not make it or because the emergency room shut down. There's there's stresses on everyone, but you know the MQO research as an example uh, for nurses, 88 percent have said that the current workload con, uh, contributes to high levels of sick leave. 87 percent increases to uh, results in injury, understaffing. I mean, they're huge numbers and you know I know not to mention the violence that are often faced by uh, uh, nurses and LPNs oh there's no doubt about it you know that these these frontline workers who are dealing with these individuals when they come in and you know they may not be in a clear state of mind but you're, you're right they deal with this and uh, we have to we have to start well we have to start showing some respect for them because that's been a been a common thread with all the groups I've spoke to is around respect uh, but we also got to look at the, the work life balance for these people you know what they do and working 24-hour shifts and and you know to having kids and that at home and, and family at home and not not being able to see them that, that's huge huge issues there and you know i've been on on Tot and patty before and i've been on other you know other interviews and, and, and i don't mean to simplify this but 
here we are. Seven, you know, we, 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 the government could have could, had seven years to work on this, and for whatever reason, we didn't. But I mean, it was still an issue back then. It still is. But when you look at, uh, you know, I, I try to simplify by by saying, look, do a spreadsheet. Do a spreadsheet of what other provinces are doing. And they seem to, and that's you know, they seem to be listening to that because we're seeing some some things come out, you know, in terms of bursaries and like, and uh, reducing red tape for licensure for for doctors and that. And these are these are are things that are doing happening in other provinces as well. But we have to do one better. You know, I said, look at that list and do one better. You know, we just negotiated, the government just negotiated the, a new contract with the, uh, the with the doctors, physicians, and the minister came on and said, well, well we're, at, we're on par with all the other jurisdictions. But we need to be above par. And the, and the nurses are going, and I, look, I'm not negotiating for the nurses here. They they can well do their do that themselves, and they're quite capable of it. Miss Coffey's quite capable of that. But when you're all competing... When you're all competing for these valuable resources in our healthcare workers, you have to do better. You have to offer more. And, and Ms. Coffey came on yesterday and, and said they're, they're the lowest paid in Canada. I mean, that's amazing. And what they do, you know, uh, she talks about, uh, I think it was somewhere up to 600 vacant nursing positions in the province. 600. And 40% of our ends are planning to to leave, to leave if conditions don't don't improve like this is this is them talking and i've always i've always said i'm not the one with the solutions i'm the conduit to talk to people and bring their solutions forward and you know when when over time and that in last year in 2021 and sick leave for rns is costing taxpayers 60 million dollars 60 million dollars then there got to be a better way and that's this work-life balance and, and trying to find ways to put to take that stress off our nurses and, of course, nurse practitioners, not utilized to their full scope. We have others out there not utilized to their full scope. Uh, we have nurse practitioners, as an example, who, who can't bill MCP. You know, these are, these are uh, low-hanging fruit, I would call them, that we need to really move, move on. And whether it's a temporary solution, whether you come in and say it for, put a sunset clause on it of two, three, four, five years, whatever, there are ways to try and take the pressure off our frontline workers and, and, and especially our nurses because of what they're doing. So, so I'm intending to be down to their, they have a rally today down at the uh, uh, CLB on the Harvey Road at uh, 12.15 today. So I intend to be down there to show support. But more importantly, more importantly, I was at the last one they had a couple of years back, is to learn from them, listen to them, learn from them what are the issues, how, what are the solutions, how can we improve this? And some people will say, well, you know, it's not always throwing money at it, but in some cases, if we're competing with all, every other jurisdiction, that helps, you know? And, uh, you know, when you talk about this Blue Ivy, um, this Blue Ivy uh, research that was done, you know, currently 54, 49% say it's an impact on their health and well-being. 45% want work-life balance. 44% is the workload. 42% is compensation is the issue. I mean, we got to take this. Government has to take this, sit down, go through it, figure out what we can do to be one better, and really listen to the stories. I mean, the stories I heard, I'll, I'll just relay one story to you that came to me. Uh, 
A gentleman uh, was brought into the health science. This is his recent uh, severe dementia, uh, waiting for a bed. They can't, the nurses can't give him a bed because there's no beds. And plus, they don't consider dementia to be an issue to put him in the bed. Anyway, he fell out of the bed. Uh, and he was, he didn't hurt himself, but the nurse, you know, the, the healthcare workers there say to him, too bad you didn't break a bone because, because you would have got a bed then. Boy, now that's where we are. That's pretty bad. Yeah. That's where we are. And, uh, I have, you know, tons of stories of that. And it's really, really, uh, it's hard to deal with at times. I don't know how the nurses do it, how our frontline staff do it, how our paramedics do it. When you hear this, you know, uh, too bad you didn't break break a bone. You would have been put in the bed. Well, how many patients are sent home because well, of a lack of a bed uh, to be left to their own devices or devices of their families, you know? It's, it's crazy. Well, well, just quote our health accord. The health accord, you know, said huge nursing vacancies. There are huge nursing vacancies in long-term care. And they go on and say 20% of all acute beds are occupied by patients who do not require that intensity of their service. They're just they're waiting for a, a long-term care bed to show up, you know. And they go on to say that 300 persons, every day, 300 older persons, on average, occupy these beds. And 40% of them waiting for long-term place. These are the numbers. So this is what's happening in the system. And, uh, you know, they're, they're done. like you think of paramedics. Paramedics will tell you they show up at the hospital. They're waiting to offload. They're waiting to offload and continue to wait. And meanwhile, there may be an accident or something somewhere else requiring them. Uh, you know, other problems are doing different things that we should be looking at. You know, there's other provinces that I've talked to, and I've talked to paramedics here. The non-emergent, they've invested more money in non-emergent ambulances and, and EMTs that would take some of that workload off our paramedics to allow them to do the job they were trained to do. Uh, well, we have to wrap it up. We're due for a break. No, well, look, I'm going to say, look, my, my heart goes out to the patients and, and uh, residents in Newfoundland and Labrador who are trying to get, get health care, but also to all our frontline workers, our nurses in particular in this particular case, uh, keep doing what you're doing, but we're going to try, try your utmost best to, to lobby for you and get you uh, what you need in terms of work-life balance and uh, and working in a, a, where you get respect. And hopefully I'll be at that rally day. I hope to talk to many, and I hope others come down and show their support. Paul Dean, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. All the best. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And we'll be back right after this. And we're back. We're going to go now to the MHA for Torn Gap Mountains, Leela Evans. Hello, Leela. Hey. <laughs> How are you? Hello. Good, I'm up in Nain, so my, I'm not sure about my uh, my reception here. Uh, Yo, you sound great. It sounds really good. Um, you attended that um, that protest yesterday. Oh, yes, and, and I must say the, the students and the parents were really pleased to hear um, the president of the NLPA on, you know, Trent Lane and, and supporting, supporting them. And that's in direct contrast to the, the minister, Minister Hagee of Education, you know. I mean, when he was Minister of Health, he really rubbed Labradorians the wrong way, and 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 people are pretty tired of his arrogance, um, you know. And for him to um, say in the House of Assembly that um, this is an internet issue and it's not his portfolio, really, really, really hurt the parents. And because it's not like the internet is a 
problem up here. We realize that, you know, um, one megabit per second is usually what we can get compared to 50 to 400 megabits per second uh, elsewhere in the province. It really shows, you know, that we, you know, we are at a disadvantage. But Linda, the re- the reason why, like, and I don't want to be politic, and you already had a couple of politicians on uh, earlier, and I'm sure the audience is getting tired of hearing from us, but up in northern Labrador in Maine, at the beginning of the stu- school year, there were the teachers there. The teachers were there to actually teach the academic program, the core courses that these students need to graduate uh, as in the academic program. They were here in Maine. And what happened was there was gaps in the junior high programs. There was, there was vacancies. So the school board and I'm sure they did it with the support of the Department of Education, they solved the vacancy issues at the junior high level by taking the academic teachers from high school, the high school teachers, and fill in the vacancies. And they shoved, I'll use that word, they shoved the high school teachers online, knowing how bad the Internet is. And now... Now the, now the students are in crisis. They, re, they really are. They got a lot of stress. Uh, you know, these were honor students who had life balance, who were doing really well, who had hopes and dreams of, of going away to school when they graduated. Right? So, Are all these kids the, uh, graduating this year? Well, the, the, the ones that are the most impacted are, are the grade 12s. They're right. graduating this year. But, 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 but taking away the academic teachers, it also impacted the grade 11s and the grade 10s who are doing the math and the English uh, and the science. Because that's, that's, that's the courses that, that they're, that's the teachers that were taken from them. Now, the teachers are, were here in Maine. Now, uh, the academic math teacher was here. The academic English teacher was here. They were missing a science teacher for the academic, just the, the core courses, but they hired somebody, they recruited the, the person. He was on leave and he's, he's, I think he's here in Maine now. So the teachers are here. Um, so really what they did is they sacrificed the high school students at the expense of filling vacancies. And that's what we have a problem with, knowing how bad the internet was. And so the, pre- the parents are really, really desperate now because they are worried about their, 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 their students. I've been talking to the students. I've been meeting with them yesterday. And, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. You okay? Yeah, no, no, just some people walking up the road. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the, the internet is so bad. I, I have to, uh, I, I have to, I have to try and find the best spot so that I don't lose the, 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 the phone. Like, you know, it, it is, it is a huge problem up here. Right. But, so, what is the solution then? If the internet is not going to work for these, for these students, and and they don't have uh, the teachers to to deliver the core curriculum. What's the solution? The teachers, the, the teachers are here, Linda. They stole the teachers away from the high school teach, teachers, and they shoved them online, and they filled the, the vacancies. Like really, they should have actively recruited for the junior high uh, program. And so, what the parents are saying now is, the only way that their students are going to recover from these past two months, you know, because the students are, you know, they're they're, they're really stressed, uh, you know. They, they were having anxiety where they never had any anxiety before. You know, I was talking to a, to a mother, and she's a quiet woman, you know, and um, she said her daughter has always worked hard to do well. And she said her daughter is, a, is, a, is an honor student. She works part-time, 
and she's maintained her average so that she can be an honor student, you know. So And she's good at sports, and she participates in sports, you know, but she balances it all. And she was doing quite well up until they put her online, you know, and, and, and now she's struggling. Uh, you know, there was an interview yesterday um, by uh, another news agency where they were talking to a student who was a 90 average student, and uh, and, and now they're down in, in the 60s. So for us, is you know, it, it is really concerning. And, you know, we, we talk about all the issues that students on the North Coast face. You know, we, you know, everyone, you know, on Truth and Reconciliation Day will put on their orange shirt across uh, the province and across Canada, you know, and say, oh, we got to do more to help these poor Indigenous people that's been impacted by residential schools. But at the end of the day, this stuff is happening now. Like what happened to these students is unacceptable. In the past, this would have been pushed under the rug and no one would have known about it. And the students would have struggled and the students would have been blamed. When the students didn't do well academically and they failed or they dropped out or they went into general, people would say, well, that's just the students in name. They're, you know, they're, they're not very good at school anyway. And the opposite is true. And arguably, uh, this wouldn't be acceptable anywhere in this province, except that it's so remote and so few people have that experience to understand exactly what these students are facing. Yes, and, you know, and and that's what really bothers me, you know, and and listening to, you know, Minister Hagee there, and he said, you know, he didn't even know about the, the situation. But I got copies of letters that the parents wrote to his executive assistant, to his office, to his email. You know, and we, we, we raised the issue. But at the end of the day, I think what everyone needs to be aware of is they sacrificed the high school students to fill their recruitment issue. They just shoved them online because that was the easy solution. And they did it knowing that our Internet is really, really slow. Like a lot of times you can't even download, download a picture let alone, you know, like a, a, a manual or a video. A lot of these online courses rely on videos. And, you know, one of the things that the parents keep saying to me, and then I started talking to the students yesterday and the day before, and the students keep saying, Leela, when we get on, when we finally get on, we're about 15, 20 minutes into the, the lecture and we're lost. And we're expected then to go home in the evening and, and make up for, for all the things we couldn't do while we're in the classroom. And, and that's really, really stressful. These kids are, are, are stressed, and it's not fair. You know? and, and I think, um, I really think people should be held accountable for this. You know, the, these are students that, that really want to go into post-secondary. They want to have their core courses done. The core courses are supposed to be in the communities. The teachers are here. And it's really, really unacceptable. And, you know, like with Minister Hagee, like the people in Labrador, especially the people on the North Coast, are really tired of his attitude. You know, he just basically dis- dismisses all the health issues we have coming out of Labrador. You know, I- I'm talking to a-, to a woman that went in for a routine, a routine hernia operation and ended up having to have her, uh, her-, her legs amputated. Like, how does that happen? Like, how, how really does that happen? You know, I've had people who went to the clinic complaining of circulatory problems in their, in their leg, only to finally, when they finally get treatment, they have to have their leg amputated. That's a different case, you know? Like, and then we, we have to listen to his arrogance, listen to his answers to our questions, dismissing it, and then he finds out that is not really full truth. 
So for us, is this this is our, our this is our this is our this is our this is our children. This is our children who's going to grow up to be adults. It's going to grow up to be our future leaders that we really need to have looked after and have their education needs addressed. Leela, it's unacceptable. We're uh, we're up to news time now, but I really appreciate the the fact that you were able to get on uh, today, given the circumstances in yep. Nane with the phones and that. Um, we're going to try and get the minister on and maybe somebody from the NLESD to um, explain the situation and maybe come up with some solutions. Really yep. appreciate your time. And Linda, the teachers were here in Nane in September, ready and willing to teach the high schools teacher at school, they were here in Maine ready to teach the students in the core courses. And instead, the teachers were robbed from them and they were basically forced to go online with the poor internet. And really, that's unacceptable. That should never have happened. And we really need to look after the students now. Something has to be done. We need a return to the in-class. Like, they're, they're so far behind and they're so stressed. They said, like, even if a miracle happened now and the internet increased, they're, you know, they're, they're still looking at probably having the switch down to general unless they can get that teacher back in the in the classroom to teach them. Leela Evans, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back right after the news with Brian Medore. Thoughts on that? Give us a call. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain sitting in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We're going to go now to Peter, who has been patiently waiting on the line. Hello, Peter. Yeah, hello, Linda. It's uh, Peter Leonard. Uh, I'm not from uh, Ken McDonald's area, but I do know him. And uh, we, uh, after having uh, lots of meetings since uh, his first term, and uh, I found him uh, to be a very devoted hard-working MP for not only his own constituents, but a lot of constituents across Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, like to stand up, uh, you know, and uh, vote for what he thought was best, what he felt was best, you know, just uh, adds a bit more to his character and what he stands for. You know, and I wouldn't, uh, if I was him, I wouldn't take any repercussions uh, either directly or indirectly, because somebody, sometimes the uh, government can punish you behind the scenes rather than out in the media. And, uh, you know, uh, Ken is going to make it uh, regardless if he walk across the floor or if he runs as an independent or whatever. Uh, in my feeling that uh, Ken McDowell will make it again as an MP if that's, it, that's what he decides. But uh, for the harvesters, fish harvesters across Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, Ken has worked so hard. Meetings that were set up by Chairman Rogers, our, uh, our MP, and on Zoom, and uh, everything over the last number of years. And believe me, like it just wasn't a meeting where he was yawning and waiting for it to be over. He was listening intensely. And uh, when it comes to safety and everything else, with boats and everything like that across, uh, and a lot of other things that I, I haven't got time to mention. You know, like uh, he dealt with it in a, a very professional manner and, and got results. So uh, my head comes off to him. And uh, like I said, uh, I'm not from his district, but 
I, I think he done the right thing. Well, um, MHAs, MPs, members, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, councillors even, will usually uh, get a lot of um, positive support from the community when they appear to be voting in favour of their constituents. Uh, that is a given. But yeah, why does it happen so seldom? You'd think now that politicians, when they get into um, into the system, uh, they're they're there for the right reasons, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, and the easiest way to get reelected is to fight for the people who put them in there. Um, but I guess they have to make these decisions, don't they, to decide which is the best way uh, to reap the benefits for their for their constituents. Well, then, uh, if you, I thought the question was, you know, like, uh, why is it so seldom? Well, I guess it's probably so seldom that people do that because of, of fear of the repercussions. And, uh, you know, Scott Stim was, uh, was the last one, I believe, that did it in Ottawa. And uh, I don't know exactly what the repercussions was in his area either. But uh, I guess sometimes if you've got the amount of money that you're fighting for for your area or stuff like that you know like uh, and it's uh, basically been approved but if you speak against the government of today well maybe you know that could be shoved by the wayside for a long time down the road and that would be a lot to the MPs constituents also you know that's that's my opinion of it you know that's one way of of repercussions and of course we all remember Jody Wilson Raybould that's for sure and uh, we could learn a lot from Britain really you know uh, uh, not very much, uh, but in the politics scene, like if you uh, if you're not wanted, you know you should be able to have the right uh, with inside to, to get rid of the the leader of today. You know what I mean? Uh, Canada right now, Newfoundland and Labrador is in a a bit of a predicament uh, with all this uh, pandemic and all this war thing that's going on in Russia right now, and uh, I think we should look after some of our own first and. Uh, when it comes to uh, all of this uh, carbon tax and uh, taxes, hikes and all that kind of stuff, you know, like I think we should be looking uh, after our own. And uh, But anyway, before I go, just to one more thing before you, you say goodbye to me, uh, and uh, is that uh, Ken, keep up the good work and uh, we'll be talking to you in the near future. And uh, but now this uh, five hundred dollars uh, to help uh, out with needy people in the in the coming year. You know, I think that five hundred dollars is uh, it's probably a bit of a waste of money. Uh, the way that they're doing it, a five hundred dollar one time thing. But uh, January, February, and March is probably the highest heating bills. And, uh, you know, and the fuel at the price it is, you know, you're looking at probably, well, so they say, in, in uh, December, we're probably looking at $2,000 to fill up a 200-gallon tank. So a $500 will probably give you 50 gallons, I mean gallons, now not liters. Uh, $500 will probably give you 50 gallons of oil. But if they had 50, if some of those people had 50 gallons of oil, per month for January, February, and March. Like, I burn electricity, or use electricity. And that's the highest heating bills that I have is uh, in that time. So people with, uh, 
you know, like people who burn diesel or furnace oil, I'm sorry, they, uh, there should be some help uh, there from in them three months. You know, we got a seniors that you probably got $1,300 a month coming in. And, uh, you know, they're either going to have to, well, I don't think they will either eat or have heat. And then you've got single parents and parents that's uh, low income. you got kids going to school, and the government of today knows. And, uh, you know, like, uh, it, it's uh, sad that they go to school without breakfast. Well, there, there is a really subsidy for, for people who too. heat their homes with, uh, with oil. There is a subsidy available. People had to apply for it. Subsidy, yeah, but we're not... Like, when you talk about subsidy, Lennon, no disrespect to what you just said. It's true, yes. But how much subsidy do you need to help you out from a tank that was filled with $200 and now is being filled with $2,000? Yeah, big difference, hey? Big difference. So, you know, like, uh, you got to put your heads, uh, the, the government of the day, you got to put your heads together and see what they're going to do with those people because with 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 the price of... Everything you know, like we got to get some, uh, we got to get some extra help out there. And uh, so, anyway, that's my uh, ramp for today. But uh, and uh, just one more thing, uh, Layla from uh, Labrador, she's always front and center and things like that. And I agree with a lot of things that you say, you know, like by John Hagee and all that kind of stuff. And but. I doubt very much if John Hagee was out at the bedside when the decision was got from a hernia to a leg being amputated. And, you know, like, i I got to give credit where credit is due. And if somebody was lucky enough to get into a hospital today for a hernia, they were blessed. Because there's a lot of people waiting to get in for more serious stuff than that. And, Linda, thanks for taking me, Carl. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, Peter. All the best. Bye-bye. We'll be back right after this. Linda Swain sitting in for Patty Daly, who is off today, and the PC leader Barry Petten has called a media availability in just a few more minutes' time to address what uh, he's calling further revelations of inappropriate behavior from staff in long-term care centers. This is very troubling indeed. We'll have more information on that. VOCM's Richard Duggan is there. Um, my guest today on On Target at 1 o'clock today is none other than the seniors advocate, Susan Walsh, and no doubt she'll be addressing this very important topic as well. So stay tuned for that. We're going to go now to Rick Kelly with Waypoints. Hello. Hello. How are you, Linda? Great. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you. So a big announcement yesterday. Yes, we were very pleased with the new basic income program for the youth. And what does it mean? So what that really means, Linda, is that the young people who are living in care, um, in group care, foster care, and when they leave, um, at the age of 16 to 21, they're seeing an increase. It's referred to as the Youth Services Program. So they'll see a $600 increase um, starting on January 1st. But it's twofold. It's, it's the financial support, but it's also uh, the uh, the other support that they're offering, they're offering supports in, in mental health, addictions, tutoring, education, and life skills. So that's huge. So how will that help specifically? Because these are young people who, I assume, are, are finishing off school and heading into the workforce. How will the extra money help? 
Well, it'll help, as you know, the cost of living has skyrocketed. So, you know, leaving group care or leaving um, in care and then being responsible for heat and rent and, and groceries, that that's very difficult and very challenging. So these funds will certainly help look after basic needs while the support will also help them navigate different systems like barriers to employment, barriers to school and stuff like that. So we're very pleased. So what were you seeing prior to this? Well, we were seeing that the young people were, were struggling on the amount that was available for them. But, uh, you know, you, we try to help all the youth that we can. But, uh, you know, we have a limited resources. But um, so we are delighted that now that it gives them more that their own independence to transition to adulthood. And uh, what's the response from uh, from the people that you work with? Oh, they're delighted. Yeah, they're, they're delighted. You know, this is, uh, you know, as you know, um, as you hear from many of your callers, you know, looking for a place to rent and the cost is very difficult. And, and sometimes, you know, when somebody knocks on the door and it's a young person looking to rent an apartment, uh, it can be very difficult. So uh, at least this way, uh, they have more resources to be able to find more uh, appropriate housing and, and food and stuff like that. Basic needs. What's the rental market out like uh, like? Th- out there now it's tough it's tough um you know it's tough for the young people uh to to break into it because of course they're coming out of group care and have uh, have no um past experience or references or stuff like that but um uh, our, our employees our, our child and youth care workers really work really hard with them transitioning out and we we always manage to find a good location for them so what does Waypoints do? What kind of uh, supports do you offer? What, what uh, you know, how do you work within the community? Well, we've been around for about over 42 years, so we're a non-profit charitable organization, and we're funded um, by government, and um, so we're governed by a volunteer board of directors. So we offer various supports. So we offer support to foster parents. We offer support to families, families that are struggling, just need some extra support. We have an employment outreach program and we have what we call a level four, which is group care, where young people live in our facility. Uh, In order to access uh, Waypoint's services, it all comes from a referral from uh, a social worker from the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. So 42 years, do you do follow-up? Do you hear from some of the young people that you've been working with and see how they've been making out? Absolutely. We're here, we're, we're, we, and we certainly do. And th- there's two things to that. We have staff that have been around a long, long time, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. So it's interesting because young people come back right out of the blue. They can come back after 10 years, 7 years, knock on the door, and they always talk about their time with Waypoints and always, of course, ask, is so-and-so working and so-and-so working? And they're very surprised when they when they know, when they're away for 5, 10 years, that our staff are still here. So, um, yeah, we, we have an outreach program uh, that we keep in contact with, with many, many of our young people. And the fact that you have staff that have been around that long it shows that they love what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I brag about our employees. We have the best youth care workers in the province. And uh, I think, you know, and we try to provide as much training as we can to our staff because we truly believe that the more training and more tools we have as child and youth care workers, the better care that we can deliver. 
Rick Kelly, Waypoints Executive Director, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Alrighty. Bye-bye. 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 Um, we're going to go now to um, Gary Green, who is a folklorist and storyteller. Hello, Gary. Hi, how are you? Good. So tell us a little bit about this, Tales from the Fairy Marsh Brook. Well, it's uh, the Fairy Marsh, and the Fairy Marsh Brook uh, sits on the top of the hill between uh, Brigus and Cupids, and it's been long associated with uh, fairies uh, for, I guess, uh, way back 1700s, 1800s. And uh, as you know, the city uh, Cupids Legacy Centre has actually a fairy garden on top of the uh, on the rooftop, and uh, Halloween's coming up, and it's the time when... Uh, Fairies traditionally are very active, and so tomorrow evening there is a show, uh, a storytelling folklore show uh, about the fairy tradition in uh, Conception Bay. Now, uh, we often think of fairies, you know, nowadays, we think of the, you know, Walt Disney type of thing, but fairies could be a little bit menacing as well, couldn't they? Absolutely, and uh, and, uh, that really did, the, the friendly fairy that Disney talks about is really dates from uh, uh, you know a much later time and the time when when uh, Cupids and Brigus and and Bay Roberts and these places were all being established um, the people that came brought with them their traditions and they were not very friendly at times um, leading people astray and and uh, uh, menacing the animals and all of that sort of thing. And it was, uh, people took it very seriously one time. Uh, I've often heard stories about my own great-grandmother who always made sure you had your sweater on inside out when you were picking berries so you wouldn't be fairy-led and you had something in your pocket to, to follow your trail. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that, uh, in fact, uh, you know, uh, there was actually a law passed in England where it, it was punishable by uh, by death for harassing or uh, otherwise maiming a fairy. Is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> and then, uh, then there's fairy lights as well, which can lead you astray. Absolutely. And... Uh, and they've been known to occur at various places in uh, in and around both Labrador and Newfoundland, the island portion. So, uh, yeah, they've been uh, around for, again, hundreds of years. So tell us a little bit more about this event, Tales from Fairy Marsh Brook, when and where? Uh, so it is tomorrow evening, uh, Thursday evening. It's at the Cubits, uh Legacy Center, and uh, from seven to eight thirty. And it's uh, it's a family show. There's there'll be tales of of the not so nice fairies and uh, some nicer fairies. And uh, we're going to have some loot bags for the kids uh, who come along. And uh, we hope it'll be a great, entertaining, and uh, uh, enjoyable evening for uh, for family outing. And the 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 fairies in Fairy Marsh Brook were they good fairies or bad fairies? Uh, they were known to have uh, abducted at least one person who went uh, who went astray uh, traveling between uh, between communities there, and uh, and certainly Burnt Point, uh, Burnt Head, which is is down towards the end of the. Uh, 
the, I guess, the isthmus there, um, that was known as a place where fairies would uh, sometimes take uh, people astray as well. So we'll be uh, we'll be telling a few of those stories along with uh, with some stories that migrated uh, here with uh, with the settlers in the in the 1600s and 1700s. Gary Green, uh, folklorist and storyteller, fascinating stuff. Hopefully you'll see a big turnout tomorrow evening at Cupid's Legacy Centre, 7 to 8.30, Tales from Fairy Marshbrook. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank Bye you. Bye-bye. And uh, we're up to news time now with Brian Medor. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly, who is off today into the last uh, half hour of the show. And it's been a busy and rollicking one. Well, interest rates now up a half a percentage point, 50 basis points, uh, 3.75%. If you're holding a variable mortgage or a line of credit, you are feeling the pinch, no doubt. We're going to go now to Daryl, who's on line two. Hi, Daryl. Oh, hi, Linda. How are you today? Good. Oh, that's good. Thanks for having me on your show. No trouble. What's on your mind? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about today, uh, as we know, like interest rates went up another 50 uh, basis points, and uh, there's no end in sight. And uh, But what I want to address, these interest rates is not going to bring down inflation. And the reason why... As uh, long as the cost of fuel and energy is going to be rising or stabilizing or not going down, inflation cannot go down. So, like, it's been known in the past that open interest rates do not bring down inflation. She might have budged by, what, point one. And the only one who's benefiting from these interest rates is that the banks are making more record profits. And so, like I listened to economists out of BC, and he said the root cause of all this is when we had to shut down 2020, and then reopening, and that was and that was the things to start stirring the pot. And I knew that this was going to lead to what we're having here today, and and it's, it's unfortunate. And what's happening, and I know the Minister of Finance, the federal government, uh, they're more or less saying, well, we can't save everybody. But you know something? They're going to have to save everybody because they're the ones that caused this problem by the shutdown and reopening. And now we got uh, the COVID, you know, starting to pick up, unfortunately, again. So why did we shut down 2020? Because, I mean, it's still going rapid and something we're going to have to live with. Well, supply so chain issues are, are the, the key here. And, you know, it, the demand is greater than what can be produced. So that's going to keep those prices high. And, of course, who right. does most of the manufacturing on this uh, little blue marble in the in the space is China. Right. And, of course, exactly. China has major shutdowns because it's so populous that uh, when COVID is discovered in a certain area they have to do the shutdowns because it'll spread too yeah. quickly and it will start to mutate again and then we're back all back to square one back to so square one again. that is what is causing a lot of these uh yeah. this inflation yeah it, but but the thing is we it is causing inflation but the thing is inflation is not going to come down by up in interest rates have been the, the governments have tried it in the past before and it just do not work you can have interest rates going up energy costs going up everything going up there's no way inflation can go down just like grocery stores the chains they're making record profits the banks are making record profits and as far as i'm concerned i think i stand to be corrected but the bank of canada paid out and i think bonuses last year was it eight million or eight billion dollars something like that 
in bonuses. I stand to be corrected. And it's I, consumers who are caught in the middle. We're getting squeezed on every well, every way, getting, shape <laughs> you, you, yes, you can mention. Yeah, and but it's not right because we shouldn't have to pay the price for all this. And the bottom line is that the government's going to have to help everybody or step in and do something because they caused it. And when 2020, when this COVID first arrived, I think it was in mid-March, they knew ahead of time what was going to happen, and nothing was done, and then it just escalated. But I know now that's in the past. We can't change that. But if they keep going the way you're going, we're, we're on a collision course here, and things are not going to get any better. Uh, we're into a recession. I think we're going to go from a recession to a retraction. The manufacturing industry last year alone lost, I think, $13 billion. And they got a labor shortage. Everything's a labor shortage now because it all goes back to that shutdown. And then all of a sudden people have stayed home and got paid. And now uh, they're not going back to their jobs. They're, they're, I was watching an episode there recently how a lot of people are doing more home-based business and to find they're making more money that way versus going back working for their employer. So we got a bad mixture here and it's uh, – is uh, so despite doing the route, route they're going, I thought it was going to go up three quarters of a percent, but it's half. But still, you're you're going to hurt the people more and more, and the problem is only going to get worse, worse, and worse. It's not going to get better until uh, energy costs and other things uh, come down. This inflation is not going to budge. So what are you going to do? Keep putting interest rates up through the roof? I mean, or how far are you going to go with this? <laughs> Well, you know, Daryl, you're important. raising some very uh, important questions, and anybody who is carrying a, a mortgage or a line of credit right now is thinking probably along the same lines. How much farther can can we go? Well, yeah, and and how's and I mean, so how's the economy going to reboot? You, you will not recover if you keep going this route. They're going to have to be more innovative and creative, and it's unfortunate that the only ones that are going to survive all this is the one percent. And that's the rich. And, and, and we're the middle class are getting cut because on decisions being made by government and whatever, we're paying a price for something that went out of our control. So why should we have to pay for price for this? So when I listen to the finance minister, the federal government, yes, uh, you know, we're into a catastrophe, no doubt about it. But when you say we can't help everybody, you should help everybody because you caused the problem with that shutdown. And that's where it was like domino effects. And then it just went from there. And then when you reopen, all of a sudden, yes, you had to have a labor shortage because a lot of people didn't want to go back to work. But what was the alternative to a shutdown? Well, what are we doing now? Well, I mean, it's going rampant now. We're living with it's it. It's going rampant yeah. now, but the, the virus has, has evolved uh, significantly. It, it uh, in evolved. the beginning, it was pretty deadly. Yeah, it was deadly, but it's, it's not going to be, uh, one, once this evolves again, it's not going to be no better in 2020. But what we did, we had to learn to live with it. And we, we got this for life. We just got to do our precautions, be safe, and do what it takes to do diligence off uh, each individual. So when they went and shut her down in 2020, now it's going to be probably, I hope it don't get any worse, but we, we got to live with it now. So at the time, why, if they had to do the same thing and no shutdown, we wouldn't be in this dilemma today. Well, you, uh, still, uh, you, have, I mean, you have more people working, 
and and there wouldn't be the severe labor shortage. I know every sector got a labor shortage, manufacturing, whatever. Now is all shortage. So and now you can't get people to work. So we got a major major problem, and it's all cause of a shutdown. If that shutdown never occurred, you wouldn't be in the state where you're to today. Well, arguably it was the pandemic. <clears throat> um, well, yeah, yeah, argue, yeah, and yeah. you're right. It was as a pandemic. But so what's the difference now? I mean, people are still passing away, unfortunately. The, the, the virus is still evolving, and I hope it don't get worse. But now, all of a sudden, now it's okay. We got to learn to live with it. So why didn't we do that back in 2000, 2020? Well, easily, I, I can tell you the reason right. why is because we didn't have a vaccine uh, for it. Uh, the <clears throat> the um, uh, the yeah. type of virus it was was brand new. Our bodies weren't yeah. used to it. We didn't know how to fight it, and people were dying, and people's lives were saved by that. Well, yeah, well, that's true, too. Now, I, I got a different opinion on all that as well, but uh, I'll just sort of keep some things uh, to myself because when you see a vaccine uh, manufacturer made in 48 hours, that, that raised my red flags as well <laughs> uh, when you look at it. But, yes, you, you, you made a good point there as well. But I mean, uh, but still, uh, uh, but still, the due diligence was this. They knew this virus was coming to Canada before it came, and, and the government was warned, but there was nothing done about it. Sometimes well, preventative is better than anything. So when you and, say and nothing was happened. done about it, what would you suggest? Well, Shutdowns? What we suggest, well, well, at the time, if they had to be more educated and whatever the case may be, it probably would have been better off. But what I'm saying is there was nothing done, then it went rapid, and then they shut down. But my whole point is you've got to try to learn to live with things as well. Yes, it's a deadly disease, and yes, it's, it's, it's not good. But the thing is, my whole point is because of the shutdown, this is what we're into the state we're here today. So what I'm trying to say is that the government has got to take full responsibility because they're the ones that did the shutdown, and it's unfortunate. So now you can't say, well, we're going to leave some people out in the cold. We can't help everybody. That's not being fair to the people. Well, what we're going through now is not um, unfamiliar to people who have watched the history of pandemics and post-pandemic periods. Right. Um, it, it's very similar to what we've seen in the past, and um, but it is affecting absolutely everyone. Daryl, we have to leave yeah. it there. We're up to a break. And, and, yeah, and I'd like to sum up one other thing. I mean, how many people had their uh, therapies canceled uh, because of, like, if they had uh, treatment for cancer, where everything had to decancel all that and, and, and paid the consequences as well when you would look at the health part of it. And look at all the other viruses we had, like Spanish flu and whatever and all that. I mean, viruses have been on the go from day one when you look at it. But, you now this is more contagious or, or more potent and more serious. But at the end of the day is that we should not have had to pay the price for what happened, and the government's going to have to take full responsibility of what's happening here today. Daryl, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Keep up the great work as usual, and all the best to you and uh, the staff at VOCM and your listening audience. All take right. care, and all the best to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. And uh, when we come back, we'll have a chat with Ted uh, right after this. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We're into the last few minutes of the show. Ted is next. Hello, Ted. Hi, Linda. How are you? Great. How are you? 
Good. Before I start, I want this. Uh, I, I want to say I appreciated listening to uh, Brilliance under Gary Green. Uh, I, I missed that guy. Uh, he proved to a young boy a long time ago how time actually does speed up as you age, and he proved it mathematically. And I won't bore you with the details now, but. Uh, it was, it was nice to hear Gary Green's doing good. Hi, Gary. <laughs> and it really does speed up. Oh, I, he proved it mathematically. I'm not going to tell you how. You ask him. All right. Fair enough. Uh, I, I got a question for you before I start. Uh, what did Ken McDonald do? Ken McDonald uh, voted in, in favor of a, a conservative motion in the House of Commons uh, asking that um, home heating fuel be exempted from carbon tax, uh, future carbon tax increases. Okay, and, and, and I, I knew I missed something. Uh, did he get ousted? We don't know that yet. Okay, the, uh, so my, my topic was why the capital should be on the West Coast. All right, hit us. Uh, it should have been uh, when when they sold us in 1949. It should have been that, that should have been part of the transfer. I emphatically said sold us. Okay. <laughs> uh, and your argument being? Because uh, the island was the, the capital was put there uh, based on the English connection, and then when they sold us. In '49, all the big, uh, the mer- big merchant money was stayed in the city of St. John's, and it was resisted highly. And here we are, stuck suffering all these years later. Um, so you think it would make abundant sense to have uh, Corner Brook as our uh, capital city because it faces the Gulf. I never said Corner Brook. I said Corner Brook. I, oh. Saint Anthony and build a, build a tunnel. I figures. There you go. There you go. Come near at your peril, Canadian wolf. <laughs> everybody's a wolf. everybody's a wolf till it's time to do wolf stuff. <laughs> That's the best thing I've heard all day. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anything else? Uh, no, that, that, that's totally. But uh, I, I listened to Mr. Callahan, and he he he's uh, he's well. He puts so much thought into uh, how he speaks; it's impressive. And he's he's etching a little over on the on the west coast of this massive island, and it's. Our little island, and we're we're, we're getting squaws out of. And I'm an Avalon Peninsula boy, by the way. Uh, and I still firmly believe the capital should be on the west coast, and nobody talks about us. Nobody ever. <laughs> All right. Well, Ted, you just have. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Uh, and uh, I'm too honest to tell tell you different. Ted's not my real name. Uh, I said Ted because I'm being a teddy bear. Oh, well, there you have go. At least you're not a wolf. Until. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I like him. Uh, Alina, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Uh, good morning or close to afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was listening to you earlier uh, about mental health and addictions. Um, I have been involved in this for at least eight years. Uh, I initially went to get help to get me help to help other people that I knew were like to deal with their addictions and their mental health. 
But my mental health is not good. Um, so I ended up going through all kinds of channels. And I'll put it like this. It's like a clock. Like a round clock from 12 to 12. You go from 12 to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You end up right where you started. And I know that you're supposed to put all kinds of money into addiction and mental health. But I don't know where the money went, Linda, because I haven't seen it. And I've been to every place. I went to get detox, and they kicked me out of the hospital. And they told me I couldn't do it at home because I could die. And they didn't take me. I had a vehicle accident two years ago. And the paramedics had to stay with me for 12 to 14 hours. And I had to leave there without any care. And so you didn't, get a, you didn't get a bed? No. They left me in the hallway with the two girls, the paramedics, and they were getting bombed with their... Um, I'm sorry, my words don't come out very good now. Um, you know, the microphones, whatever they got, and they're getting called and called and called, and they can't leave me until I got a bracelet on. And I'm up Southern Shore. So there's only two buses up here. So these girls have to, they're getting calls and they can't leave me until they can't I'm leave, yeah. they, and and Until you are admitted, they cannot leave, yeah. Yeah, and they can't. And, and they were frustrated and they were really good. But I mean, like up the Southern Shore, like we got two buses up here. If one of them is in the hospital 14 hours and they can't leave me, then other people are suffering. Yeah, and we've been hearing um, those concerns raised by both paramedics and um, and NAEP in, in recent months. And they're doing the best they can. I, 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 you know, kudos to them. But, like, the system is not right, and... You know, the mental health thing, uh, Linda, like, I'll tell you, I've been to every place, every warm line, everything, and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. You just don't feel that the the supports are there. No, there's nothing. And I know because I've been through everything, like I said, like the clock from 12 to 12. Alina, I hate to do this to you because we're completely out of time, but can I I invite you to call back earlier tomorrow and and we can finish this conversation? If it's not me, it'll be Patty or or Tim. Okay, thank you, Linda. All right, so sorry about that. All right, bye-bye. And uh, that's all we can do when when the show is uh, over. We uh, wanted to remind you, because we've been getting calls, the Neighborhood Watch meeting at the Hub on Mary Meeting Road is taking place this evening at 6.30. Um, we understand there's great interest in that because of a rise in crime in the general area. Uh, we'll be watching that very closely to see uh, what comes out of it. Really appreciate uh, everyone's calls this morning. Very interesting show, no doubt. And um, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, whether it's myself or Patty or Tim. Uh, so we'll be there ready to take your calls and uh, on target this afternoon with the Seniors Advocate coming up in another hour's time. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone.